We here at Faith and Fable are happy to announce our one-year anniversary giveaway is going on this very minute. Crossway Publishing is sponsoring our one-year $100 giveaway in the form of the entire New Testament ESV journaling Bible set. This 19-volume set, including every book of the New Testament, each volume is thin, portable, and perfect for personal Bible study, small group Bible study, or taking notes through a sermon series. So don't miss your chance to win by giving us five stars on iTunes and leaving a review. Here's the deal. To be eligible for this drawing, not only must you leave a five-star rating, but you've got to give an outstanding review to satisfy the expectations of Mark Mueller. So head on over to iTunes for your chance to win. This is Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast where we discuss common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. I'm Mark. I'm Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry. And I'm Lena. And since you're listening to Faith and Fable right now, just scroll down if you're on iTunes and swipe your finger across the stars and scroll back up and enjoy the rest of this episode. Thank you. All the way to the fifth star. Try to extend your finger all the way as far as you can. Mm -hmm. Just do a quick swipe all the way to the right. So get them. Easy yeah. peasy. You guys can start talking now. <laughs> I've got <Cool>. nothing. <laughs> All right. Like, I feel like we should add something to that. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> I was watching Lena as she's sweeping her hand. I'm like, we should be filming. Well, this, this is the final episode, though, that we're announcing that they should comment on iTunes. Exactly. Right. If they want review. to be entered to draw, uh, be drawn for this thingy. Mm-hmm. This giveaway. This, this thingy. This thingy. <laughs> this thingy. <laughs> this 19 volume thingy. 19 volume ESV. Can you imagine? Bible set. Journaling Bible set, right. Can you imagine how smug they're going to look when they come walking into the church carrying their multi volume New Testament? Yeah, it's just my Bible. <laughs> I want it. Did Fame nothing for it. <laughs> I want it. It's a and major I'll, award. <laughs> yeah. I would, if I saw that, I would immediately say, well, we're preaching from the Old Testament. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't use ESV. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. But, well, anyway, so we're um, we're finishing up, actually, today's the theological anthropology. This is the final episode for that. Um, and so we've been, the last few episodes have been working through the aspects of man, um, and we basically have done just a bunch of <laughs> lexical work. Uh, it's been riveting. <laughs> yeah, no, that's one they're replaying. Um, but we worked through the the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we just tried to show how the biblical authors understand the nature of man. And what we hopefully were able to show is that the evidence has overwhelmingly um, been revealing that man should be understood holistically. Um, and so we've been stressing that point. Um, you know, people have a tendency to view man in terms of his constituent parts, um, you know, as physical, spiritual, emotional, mental. Um, and the result is that we then seek to deal with man in this compartmentalized way. And we make the assumption that the various issues which, which plague man must therefore be dealt with in separate ways. Uh, but the biblical authors don't really do this. 
Um, rather, they, they see man as having various aspects, but not parts. And while it's a subtle distinction, it's an important one because it has consequences and also ramifications. And so the authors understood man holistically and therefore talk about him and deal with man in a holistic manner. And so that's the point to understand. And so today, again, we're going to finish this thing out and just discuss some uh, two systematic issues um, involving man, namely the essence of man and makeup of man. I remember the first time I uh, studied this whole topic, I was still in Houston, hadn't gotten to Bible college or anything. And man, I was thinking I was one smart guy. And I also... Reading had, some big words. Yeah, and I was using them yeah. and probably boring everyone. And um, I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All of that to say, see, you don't want to be me. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, some issues, as he said, systematic, the systematic theological issues related to man. The first one is uh, the terms dichotomy or trichotomy. And the question is, is a man, is man body and soul slash spirit, or is man uh, a body, a soul, and a spirit? So we're going to start off by two rather lengthy um, quotes, but they're, they're good quotes. Um, I'll, I'll start, I'll do the first one. A view rather popular in conservative Protestant circles has been termed the tri trichotomous view. It says that man is composed of three elements— the first element is a physical body. A physical nature is something that man has in common with animals and plants. There is no difference in kind between man's body and that of animals and plants. The difference is simply that, that, of, a that of degree as man has a more complex physical structure. The second part of man is the soul. This is a psychological element, the basis of reason, of emotion, of social interrelatedness, and the like. Animals are thought to have a rudimentary soul. Possession of a soul is what distinguishes man and animals from the plants, while the soul of man is much more involved and capable than that of the animals. Their souls are similar in kind. What really distinguishes man from animals is not that he has a more complex and advanced soul, but that he possesses a third element, namely a spirit. This religious element enables the human to perceive spiritual matters and respond to spiritual stimuli. It is the seat of the spiritual qualities of the individual, whereas the personality tra traits reside in the soul. A goodly portion of trichotomism is indebted to the ancient Greek metaphysics. Except for occasional explicit reference, however, the influence of Greek philosophers is not readily present. And what he means is within the scripture. And that's uh, Franz Delich. I think we agreed that that's how, well, that's how I'm going to pronounce his name uh, in his book, A System of Biblical Psychology. Yeah. So basically he's saying man, plants, animals all share body and soul. Right. But humans possess this third category called spirit as well, which is that religious component, which is, right. so that's the trichotomous that position. that was what I held in when I lived that's, in Houston. Okay, sure. And I thought that was deep. Boy, you always, you always give away the, Dang. the lead here. Giving away the position. We, we want to keep them on their toes of which one's right and which one's wrong. Oh. It's a long you game, know? man. I, I fail. I yeah. fail. I <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. You guys just tune in next week and 
Hopefully one of you won. <laughs> I'm going to go home now. All right. Well, let me give a quote from um, Millard Erickson's Systematic Theology. He says, probably the most widely held view through most of the history of Christian thought has been the view that man is composed of two elements, a material aspect, the body, and an immaterial component, the soul of spirit. Many of the arguments of dichotomism are, in essence, arguments against the trichotomous conception, which is most theology. They're always writing in reaction to something. Uh, the terms spirit and soul often seem to be used interchangeably. Note, for example, Luke 1, 46 through 47, which is in all likelihood an example of a parallelism. Um, and this is Mary here. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Erickson says here, the two terms seem virtually equivalent. And that's they, a, it, it doesn't, it's not likely a parallelism. It simply is. But, yeah. But in I, I, Jewish I know what thought, you're saying. Right? Um, and then he goes on. There are many other instances. The basic component of man are designed as body and soul, um, such as Matthew 6, 25, 10, 28. But body and spirit, we see that in Ecclesiastes 12, 7, and 1 Corinthians 5, 3, and 5. Death is described as giving up the soul. Um, and you can see the references in the notes. But as a giving up of the spirit. Um, he says, at times the word soul is used in such a way as to be synonymous with one's self or life. Matthew 6, 25, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Um, and that's the term suke, which we talked about last time. And he says, there are also many references to being troubled in spirit, um, but also as being troubled of soul. Um, and so again, he's just trying to show that how they're the synonymous nature sure, of soul sure. and, and spirit. Um, and we've just spent, you know, the past several episodes explaining that. that. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's what he's trying to show here with this dichotomous position. So um, what are some of the dichotomy arguments? All right. So the first one would be that the terms soul and spirit are often interchangeable when referring to the immaterial parts of, uh, or aspects, I'm sorry, of man. Essentially, they seem to speak of the same thing, but in different ways. So their uh, their aspect, the way that they're perceived and, and looking at the situation is slightly different. Um, so you have soul, it seems, but notice that word, that's an important word, seems to be used with making the distinction between man's immaterial aspect versus the material aspect of himself. And then other times you'll see the word spirit, and it seems to be used to refer to the immaterial aspect of man in relation to the immaterial or spiritual realm. And that's that's where I think this stuff gets fascinating is you start to see these real subtle, uh, unique um, yeah. aspects of, of theology that only by doing things very carefully and observing do you start to see. And so... Now, this begins to sound close to the trichotomous. Remember that they say the soul is a reference to a person's physical experience, whereas the spirit is a reference to the spiritual experience. And so they will say that this is what separates the human from animals, and animals can experience that physical, physical aspect, but they can have no religious experience, except for, of course, Balaam and his donkey. Yeah. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but, well, I'm just saying, um, but this does not, but this does work because when you examine the terms, either can refer to the whole immaterial part of man. And you're going to see that in passages like Matthew 10, 28 
in First Corinthians yeah, seven does, three four. Does not work. I'm sorry. It does <laughs> not work. Yeah. <laughs> Key, uh, an important word there. You yeah. Know? Glad yeah. you added that after I said well, it. Well, <laughs> all right. So this does not work, as he said. Um, also, either word may designate the disembodied, immaterial part of man, such as in Acts uh, seven fifty nine. Um, yeah, no, the scriptures seem to teach that man has two basic elements. Um, again, we've been seeing this. They have the soul slash spirit and then the body. Um, having said that, uh, two aspects or elements uh, do not, they, that doesn't authorize us to break man into parts that operate distinct from one another. Um, rather, they interact together in a seamless fashion that does defy distinction. Um and so here's a quote. You want to actually read this one from Erickson? Yeah. Uh, we have noted that in the Old Testament, uh, man is regarded as a unity. The pictures of man in Scripture seem to regard him, for the most part, as a unitary being. Uh, seldom is his spiritual nature addressed independently or uh, of or apart from the body. Having said this, however, we must also recall those passages which point to an immaterial aspect of man, which is, in, which is separable from his material existence. Uh, hang on, I just messed up. Um, scripture indicates that there is an intermediate state involving personal conscious existence between death and resurrection. This concept of an intermediate state is not inconsistent with the doctrine of resurrection. For the intermediate, i.e. the immaterial or disembodied state, is clearly incomplete or abnormal, such as in 2 Corinthians 5, 2-4. We talked about that, I think, the last episode. Um, in the coming resurrection, the person will receive a new or perfected body, according to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the full range of the biblical data can best be accommodated by the view which we will term conditional unity. According to this view, the normal state of man is as a materialized unitary being. And that's Erickson. <laughs> yeah, leave it to a theologian to come up with a conditional unity. Yeah. To talk about that. Okay. Um, but w so the, the thing is here, though, when you consider the, the various arguments of dichotomy or dichotomism, you're going to quickly discover that they're really just arguments in reaction or against the trichotomous position. Um, now, that doesn't make them wrong, um, but it is it is useful to understand that. Um, in fact, that's true of so much of theology, though, is that right, yeah. when, you're t when they're starting to take views, it's more a pushback against a different, rather, uh, an another view rather than a positive um, mm -hmm. declaration, but yeah. go ahead. Um, when it comes to the, the trichotomous position, um, we would say that too much emphasis is made on just select texts to argue for this position. Uh, in fact, just consider these passages. Um, in Mark 12, 3, it says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, if you're going to go with that, then you can't argue for a trichotomy position. You have nope. to argue for a quadricotomy position. Which is an awesome <laughs> word. <laughs> yeah, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, so in that sense, this th that verse actually better fits the idea of a more holistic or aspectival approach, which is what we've been arguing for. Right. And, and all he's really saying there is with the totality of who you are in every way or aspect, you, you're to love them. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the point. Right. And, and leave it to us to then say, oh, 
he's breaking us into parts and we should now make big deal out of that. But it's like you missed the whole point of the right. passage. Um, in Matthew twenty two thirty seven, we again have Jesus speaking. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is a trichotomy, but it's a different trichotomy. Right. Uh, so we have body is not even mentioned. So it could actually be argued that the body is an unspoken addition, making then another quadricotomy. Yeah, yeah. Say that three times real fast. Right. But those are, uh, well, go ahead. Yeah, so th those are, yeah, a couple of verses that they'll go to. Um, there are two other passages, and these are the two big ones used um, commonly to support the trichotomy position. You have 1 Corinthians 5.23, which says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, now, the assumption here is that the separate enumeration where he says the, the spirit, the soul, and the body, uh, the assumption there um, is that we should therefore understand them as being separate entities. Um, but when you look at the passage, since it's concerned with the preservation of the whole man. Uh, he says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Um, so since the passage is concerned with the whole man, it seems more reasonable to suppose that the, the piling up of the terms here is for the sake of emphasis rather than definition. And yeah. I mean, that's something Guthrie points out in his New Testament theology. In other words, Paul wants the whole man to be sanctified. Which fits with the totality of what the scripture talks about. Yeah. Now, what's interesting, if you do use that verse as a trichotomist, um, it, it would actually imply that in the context there, because he's arguing for the sanctification of the whole man, it would imply then that certain aspects of man can be sanctified while others remain unsanctified, um, if you're going to hold to a trichotomy position. Um, so, we'd say that this is nothing more than a figure of speech in this Thessalonians passage. Um, not to mention, you'd have to argue this verse in the face of virtually the rest of scriptural evidence, which is what we've done in the past few episodes. Right. Well, then there's another favorite, and uh, it's a well-known and well-loved passage. Uh, in Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both of uh, both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so uh, this would only be the only passage left if you wanted to argue for the trichotomous position. Uh, so if you choose to view man as three based on this passage alone, it would be really against the face of the entirety of the scripture. Um, having said that, here's why it doesn't hold up. Um, there, first of all, there is no between in, in the Greek. Right, right. Um, so it's not actually implying there is an actual distinction between the two. Notice also that the passage is filled with couplets. Um, and this is, when I saw this, it's like, oh, that makes this verse even better. Mm -hmm. um, uh, th these couplets, the, the living and active soul and spirit, joints and marrow, thoughts and intentions. And so this helps us understand what the author is doing. He's actually speaking uh, in, in the figure of speech of hyperbole. What he's showing is how powerful the Word of God truly is, that it can cut even into those places in which there is no separation. Um, how do you distinguish between a thought 
and then intention of a thought. I mean, where, where's that line? Right, right. Uh, well, we can't know. Mm-hmm. Um, we, before modern medicine, how would you ever be able to separate a bone from its marrow? Again, there is no distinction there. that They meld together um, and form a, a complete unit. And that's the point. It's The point is to show that there is no true separation, and yet the Word of God is that unique reality that reveals that which is otherwise impossible to reveal. And that's the point of the uh, of the passage. So it's not even a good argument for trichotomy. Rather, it simply makes the dichotomy position even stronger because right. it's, it's talking about how here we are in our holistic reality and the Word of God can pierce right into the midst of that and, and bring out what is really there. Yeah. So PEUs in his commentary to the Hebrews... Have you ever used that commentary? Uh, Hughes? Yeah. Probably. Yeah, it's a good it, it's a good commentary. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, there's points I don't agree with on the, theology, but it's a good one. Mm-hmm. Anyhow. Um, he says, our author is not concerned to provide here a psychological or anatomical analysis <laughs> of human constitution, but rather to describe in graphic terms the penetration of God's word to the innermost depths of man's personality. The point is that no separation could be more intimate than that between soul and spirit or between joints and marrow. The mention of the soul and the spirit and of joints and marrow then serves to convey effectively the notion of the extreme power of penetration of God's word to the very core of man's being. And that's a good summary of that passage. Yeah. Um, so some concluding thoughts on this you want to give uh, Lewis and Demersis? Sure. Um, in it, their integrative theology book, uh, I got some guy commenting on my Facebook and it keeps popping up. So... I'm like, sorry. Um, concerning the imago metaphysica- metaphysically, Paul <laughs> consistently infers that human nature is dichotomous. The person is a complex unity consisting of spirit and body and the inner and outer person. Two principal Pauline doctrines, namely the doctrine of redemption and the intermediate state, establish a dichotomy. According to Romans 8.23, salvation in this life is applied to the outer self or the body. Um, Philippians 1.22-24 attests Paul's longing to leave this earthly body, the sarks, um, to be with Christ in the disembodied state. Um. So it's important to train ourselves in conclusion here not to think of man in the sense of parts. Rather, it's more biblical to see man from different aspects. And these aspects don't create separations within a person, but rather maintain the wholeness of man and help us see how all these aspects are interrelated. Um, an, An example of this, for instance, would be seen in the realm of apologetical methodology. Um... It's, it's not common for a person to affirm, and this is just an example. Not it's not uncommon. Yeah, uncommon for a person to affirm something like total depravity in man as an absolute truth, um, and yet believe that through something like rationalistic argument or by showing evidences and proofs that a person can be persuaded to seek Christ. Um, and, but the way that they would then do that is by making that, that unbiblical distinction between the heart, which is totally depraved, and does not seek God with the mind. Yes. Um, because now you can argue them into pursuing Christ so somehow. And, and so this is where theology becomes exciting because you start to see that this is not just a dry 
though it may seem dry while you're slogging through these various terms and stuff, it's not because um, it it does have consequences. Um, you know, we we just saw how uh, P.E. Hughes was talking about the fact that the the power of the Word of God to make that extreme level of penetration into the very core of humanity and and bring out that which is there. But when you go into a trichotomous view, the first thing that happens usually is you then make the argument for these other um, sciences, if you will, that, well, we just, when we're dealing with the soul, we just need psychology. And so we we really need to bring in, frankly, pagan ideas like Freud um, and, and apply those into the soul of man where we need the Bible for the spirit of man. But in fact, the point of a passage like Hebrews is saying, no, the one thing, the only thing that can really go into the core of the being of man and bring out one, the problem, but also then bring to it the answer is the word of God. And and so once you start to see man in this holistic way of body and spirit, you realize that only in the word of God will that answer be found. And so then what you, what your point was, was, how many times now I'm a presuppositionalist when it comes to apologetics and um I, I hold that look, any any idea that you can soften a person up with the gospel prior to bringing the gospel um is built on faulty theology because you're claiming we believe man is depraved fully, but somehow through rationalism, and that's your that's your point that you made. Yeah. And that's right. but that's huge. I mean, there's people who won't talk to a presuppositionalist because they're evidentialists or mm-hmm. rationalists. When you're seeing this play out in Luke and also in Acts, the one you're preaching through Acts, but when they're, I mean, they're having miracles done before their eyes. Um, but in the gospel of Luke, Jesus is doing these and the Pharisees are hardened by them. Yeah. Because even though they're they're agreeing yeah. that this actually happened because it's an issue of a dead heart, not an issue of, I need more evidence or proof that you are who you say you are. Yeah, in fact, he, he dealt with that in John where there's like, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. And he's like, I did. <laughs> right. And you would not believe. Mm-hmm. And, and so he speaks right in there of, yeah. of the fact that your hearts are dead. And, yeah. and you know, I've been telling you everything's so plain and you miss it. Yeah. And I think it encourages me when I'm evangelizing because I th- then again it reminds me that my task is to bring the gospel. I can give a, a reasonable argument. I can give explanation. There's nothing wrong with it, but don't place my hope there. The power of salvation is right. in the gospel. And um, understand I'm dealing with the, the whole of the man. I'm not trying to just talk to some part, if you will. Right. Yeah. And then, lest you think we're exaggerating that one, then work through the gospels and see how many times Jesus, knowing what's in their heart, refuses then to do miracles. Yeah. Because that all the more, he knows that that's not what's going to convince him or persuade him. Yeah, it, it's it's fascinating and worth thinking about. Yeah. Okay, so the next uh, aspect that we'll deal with is the origin of man's immaterial essence. In other words, um, the soul slash spirit. And the two fancy words for that is traducianism uh, or creationism. So do you want to read the first quote? Yeah, so this comes from Grudem's theology. He says, creationism is the view that God creates a new soul for each person and sends it to that person's body sometime between conception and birth. Traducianism, on the other hand, holds that the soul, as well as the body of a child, are inherited 
from the baby's mother and father at the time of conception. Both views have had numerous defenders in the history of the Church, with creationism eventually becoming the prevailing view in the Roman Catholic Church. Luther was in favor of traducianism, while Calvin favored creationism. On the other hand, there are some later Calvinist theologians, such as Jonathan Edwards and A.G. Strong, who favored uh, probably A.H. Strong. I was going to say, uh, that's A.H. Yeah, but... that's a miss. What's new? Um, <laughs> and A.H. Uh, Strong, who favored traducianism, uh, as do most Lutheran, Lutherans today. Creationism has had many modern evangelical advocates as well. Yeah, so behind all of this is a philosophical question that deals with the omniscience of God. Essentially, so again, right there, we're seeing how you can look at all your systematics, and if you keep them separate, you're still going to go straight. You've got to understand that they're interacting uh, with each other. So here, it's with the omniscience of God. Essentially, what the question is, is whether our souls were in existence before the body. The argument has been offered over the centuries that it's almost impossible to distinguish between God's eternal knowledge of each soul and the pre-existence of the of that soul. That's getting yeah. into kind of heavy waters right there. Um, what's the you know how do how do you distinguish if God has always known your soul? Then didn't it? Didn't he? Didn't you exist in some aspect? Simply because you were, your soul was in his mind. Right. Right. Um, in other words, the fact that we've all been eternally known by God, did we not then essentially exist in his mind before we were conceived? Again, that, that's a very philosophical idea. It's not at all uh, necessarily helpful, but yeah, it's fun yeah. to think about. <laughs> right. Um, so in the early church origin, um, he uh, he began to teach the pre-existence of the soul. And so here is something from Buswell's Systematic Theology, or Buswell, however you want to pronounce mm -hmm. it. Um, he said, uh, Origen held that the soul had been through many previous incarnations in which it had incurred sinfulness. His views were not very different from the transmigration doctrine of Plato and the Greeks in general. Well, that's well, Origen. That, yeah. Um, the pre-existence theory has never been acceptable to Orthodox Christian theologians. It is wholly absent from the Bible and quite inconsistent with the eschatological doctrines of eternal life or the eternal punishment of the individual. In other words, if, if you're going through these incarnate, uh, if you're being reincarnated over and over again, you're not dealing with the afterlife as the Bible explains it, right. which is you then, you know, it's appointed once for man to die, then face judgment, as Hebrew says. I get really tired of origin popping up. His influence is incredible, incredible on theology and well, very little a, of it. He helpful. was an early one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so why care? Well, you know, why, <laughs> people are like, if you're still listening, <laughs> um, at one level, the issue has no concern. I mean, nobody really cares. Uh, it's a, a small part of theological debate. Um, it's what theologians do because that's what they do. Um, and yet at another level, there are real questions related to original sin and the holiness of God. And so the question is, as as a child is created, does he create a sinful child? That's right. you know, you're like, oh, mm -hmm. oh. And then all of a sudden, maybe you want to take a sip of your beer or whatever and say, maybe we should talk about this. Um, here's another one. Uh, and I know of a, I, well, he's now with the Lord, but there was a pastor, a very prominent pastor in Houston when I was just learning all of this. And he argued uh, that the soul was not created um, until birth. And so 
The question is, does a person have freedom to abort an unborn child because they're not yet in possession of the soul? And, and so you're like, whoa, you went there. And yet they did. And so he actually argued that it's totally okay at this point that literally is just a uh, thing of tissue. Yeah. It, it might be alive, but it's not a living soul. Yeah. And so while it's somewhat obscure conversation, it really does end up having some real life possibilities and consequences when people are looking. And I think that's probably more the key when people are looking for a way to give an excuse um, for certain actions. Yeah. Well, let me say a word then about traducianism. Um, this is basically basically the idea that the, the spirit of a person is again brought into existence, but through the natural process of procreation. Um, so just th there's some direct, direct scriptural proof texts that they'll use, and you can check those out in the show notes. Um, but then there's also some indirect scriptural proof texts, you know, such as Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Um, it's the idea that God rests on the seventh day. Um, and so the point is that now God has ceased from creating. And so any person who's now born is simply born via a natural process. Um, and this includes, of course, the spirit soul. Um, you know, you got Exodus twenty eleven, and then also Luke 1, 34 through 35. Um, in that one, you got the birth of Jesus and Joseph, Joseph, of course, is not the father. Um, but we know that God is the father. And so they'll say if, if Joseph was the father, as the argument goes, then Jesus would have inherited a, a sinful soul or spirit. Um, but again, the implication is that the soul or the spirit is brought into being through the natural act of procreation. Right. Therefore, this is why the father had via the spirit right had to implant mary right um, which is always awkward how you say <laughs> i don't know what the, yeah, yeah yeah um creationism uh this is the view then that states that the human parent creates a physical body but that god is uniquely creating the spirit or the soul uh, again in our show notes we have several passages that you can look at if you're really really wanting to see it but they have some proof texts such as in Ecclesiastes 12:7 Isaiah 57:16 uh, I'll I'll read for you Hebrews or oh, actually Lena you want to read the Hebrews 12 verse 9 Furthermore we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them shall we not much rather be subjected to the father of spirits and live Okay so the, the idea is the term, the father of spirits. So, see, he's the one that's bringing the spirits in. I think they're pressing that a, a bit, but hey. Um, so, quoting Burkauer, um, he rightly observes, it should not surprise us that nowhere in the scripture is the origin of the soul spoken of as a separate theme. It would seem to be undeniable that the scriptural evidence called onto to support creationism is interpreted in terms of particular anthropological presuppositions, and he's referencing uh, Hebrews twelve nineteen or twelve nine. The point of difference is not that God is the source of one part of man and earthly fathers the source of another part, but rather that God is the creator of life in His incomparable glory and majesty, which is a good point. Yeah, so. When taking into account the scriptural data, it seems that there are, are many references to God just sovereignly overseeing that procreative process from start to finish of the whole person rather than just of one man. Again, it's not God dealing with the soul and spirit and then, you know, parents are dealing with that physical aspect of them. Right. And you'll see that in Psalm 119, Psalm 139, so on and so forth. 
Um, so give us some uh, conclusions on this. All right. So unfortunately, this is something that has created a lot of rifts in relationships, in churches, in individual believers. Uh, I personally have witnessed this. You know, I don't know with the listeners if they've ever encountered Have you ever gotten into a this in the church context, any of these debates? No. Oh, uh, it, it used to rage um, in some of the churches I was in. Um, and it went way, way beyond what it should have. And it also was frustrating because it usually left the realm of Scripture and uh, you were just planting your flag. But to hold to a creationist position can cause a person to begin to develop this uh, umbil- uh, unbiblical dualism between spirit and and body, um, you know, and and we have been fighting that this whole aspect of anthropology. Don't look as look at it in parts. Uh, to hold to a traducian traducian position can lead to a rejection of the continuation of the image of God because they're saying, "Well, it's just now a man being, a ma- yeah, male and female. They're creating it, and so somehow the uh, image of God goes away." Really, again, it seems best to see that the entire person is created and reproduced in conception. But it doesn't mean that only man is involved in that conception, a charge that's often leveled against a Traducian, is a Traducian position. God is clearly and intimately involved in the opening and the closing of wombs. In fact, he is infinitely involved in the entire creating uh, and fashioning of each person. So like in Psalm 139, verse 14, I will give thanks to you. Why? For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. So we don't, we're actually, and this is where theology can get itself in trouble. We start to get into a place where the scripture's not overtly instructing us, and we can create undue division among the brothers and sisters and arrive at conclusions and try to defend them when we use Scripture as it's not designed. Um, the reality is is that there is a mystery here, and it always has been a mystery of how these two cells you know, become a living being. Yep. So those are our thoughts. Um, and with that brings um, theological anthropology to a close. We do hope this has been of some help to you and at least gives you a good place to start thinking on some of these issues. It can be complex, sometimes heated, uh, at least the consequences of ideas. Uh, But nevertheless, a good conversation to have. Remember, all thoughts, ideas, and theologies of Scripture have consequences, and so we'd say it's important to get it right or at least talk about it well. Uh, But next time, we'll jump into homardiology or the doctrine of sin. But until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation, let us know what you think about the essence of man, leave us five-star reviews and comments on iTunes for your chance to win the entire New Testament set of Crossway Journaling Bibles, and don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review. Hit us up on our new Twitter account, and tell all your friends. 